to this session, which is on religion in peacebuilding and conflict. And we are fortunate to have with us Phil Lewis from Bradford, Bill Headley all the way from San Diego, and Shuran Raghavan all the way from Sri Lanka via Kent okay. to other places. So let us begin with a presentation by um, Phil Lewis. You can see the abstract. Phil is based in Bradford. He is the interfaith advisor to the Bishop of Bradford, that is the Anglican Bishop, the Middle Bishop, and uh, one who is not at all unconcerned about interfaith um, peace building in cities. Phil, over to you. A middle bishop, but not yet a woman bishop, unlike America. Hopefully that'll come. Um, the, the actual sort of short outline of a note, we've got about a quarter of 20 minutes, I think, through the presentation. Uh, if you're interested, I've, I've taken, this is really sort of a shortened version of a chapter in a book, which came out last year, called World Christianity in Muslim Encounter. And it's a, you know, kind of case study, really. It's kind of continuing press. So World Christianity in Muslim Encounter, there's a sort of much fuller, version which I sort of lifted this presentation from. Um, You've got some sort of notes in front of you. I'll sort of elaborate those notes really. And the point I think I wanted to make was that I've long felt the city and town is a neglected focus of peacemaking. Often we talk of nations and we're relaxed about national, transnational, globalization, but we don't often look at the city as a unit of analysis. And I happen to live in Bradford and have lived there for 25 years. And in a way, Bradford is almost a laboratory for inter-community, inter-religious relationships. It's where it became notorious in the late 80s. That's where the Satanic Verses book, novel, was burnt. So in terms of the national media, the first time the Muslim community has exploded in terms of British national profile was Bradford. Bradford became a kind of iconic place for authentic Muslims. So whenever you wanted a perspective on Muslims, you know, God bless them, the journalists all came to Bradford. And I have to say to you, we were, you know, we were relieved in 7-7 that it happened in Leeds, not Bradford. Let me say that to you. You know, otherwise we'd have had absolute tribes of you know, journalists reactivating the images and stereotypes of, of the city. So, so Bradford is, I think, an important place to, to see, in a, in a way, to see how intercommunity, interreligious relationships are playing out. And, and in a way, it's a microcosm of what's happening globally. Um, I've given you a little bit of background on Bradford in the second paragraph. It used to be the sort of capital war capital of the world, like so many northern cities, its textile industry collapsed. That was its main industry, a bit like Liverpool and the docks. So you've got a difficult sort of macro-economic context in Bradford. And yet textiles was the sort of magnet for migrant labour, whether Irish Catholics in the late 19th century, Afro-Caribbean in the 50s, or latterly South Asian Muslims, really. And I've given you a little bit of of a sort of demographics of of Bradford. In 1961, we had 3,000 Muslims, or Pakistanis. Now, Pakistan then was East and West Pakistan, what we would now call post-71 Bangladesh. And these were all, virtually all, single men, kind of coming for a few years from often rural Kashmir, make some money, return home, replaced by a relative. In the late 60s, that became impossible, the immigration, and the unintended result of immigration was a massive increase of the Pakistani communities. It's one of life's little ironies. So by 1991, 
we have 50,000, what, what, I think what we should call ethno-Muslim communities, mainly in Pakistan and within Pakistan, mainly rural Kashmir. And then that community, those communities grew to about 75,000 in 2001. And demographic projections is an imprecise science, but arguably the communities will double by 2020. So half the city of Bradford will be ethno-Muslim communities. Um, and you'll know that, that we've had, Bradford's been a site also of major riots in 95 and 2001, largely involving young, young Bradford Pakistani lads, really. Um, and as a result of the Northern riots, there was a plethora of um, reports, and you probably remember one of the reports, Cantor, talked about parallel worlds. You know, he spoke about separate educational arrangements, community and voluntary bodies, employment, places of worship, language, social and cultural networks, means that many communities operate on the basis of a series of parallel lives. They do not touch at any point, let alone overlap and promote any meaningful interchange. That's exaggerated, I'm bound to say. But, you know, there is a level of ethnic segregation in the city, and it would be idle to pretend otherwise. And, and I think the demographics are interesting as well. Why I think Bradford is you know, a laboratory. Can we get it right in terms of relaxed inter-community, inter-religious relationships, really? Um, now, what I've done, I've structured the, the paper around three, three kind of examples where, where, if you like, Christians, Muslims secular organisations have been involved in creating what Robert Putnam calls bridging capital. Most of you will be aware of this rather inelegant jargon, but it's useful as a kind of shorthand. You know, where, you know, where do communities interact? There's plenty of bonding uh, capital in Bradford, but not overly much bridging across communities. So I thought I would just give you sort of three, three attempts in a way to develop some measure of bridging capital at different levels of the city. One is a city-wide initiative, which was reactive to a fear of, of a Madrid-type bombing. So that was reactive, but it was city-wide. And a second one after the second riots was an attempt to develop what, we've, what we subsequently called an intercultural leadership school, which was basically to try and contribute to a new leadership in the city which could move across comfortably ethnic and religious divides. So young people, I'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, more localised. Often there's very, often at a city level there are good inter-religious relationships among a, you know, a small group of people. But the big challenge is how do, you, how do you render that routine at a local level? And I'll just talk a little bit about various initiatives with imams and clergy. Because you can have a massive mosque and a church and there's no communication. And it can actually be side by side in inner city Bradford. So those are just sort of, I thought I'd give you those three sort of little examples um, and just a few conclusions. Now, if we take the first of the example, um, a sort of towards what I've called an integrated civic network, I've just listed kind of three drivers behind the creation of the civic network. The first was one of my colleagues from peace studies, a professor of peace studies, was in Madrid after the bombing and was enormously impressed by the statesman-like intervention of the Lord Mayor, which prevented a kind of reaction uh, you know, against the local Moroccan communities. And the question she asked is, did we, in Bradford, have a similar level of statesman-like interventions 
And regrettably, the answer was no. Mm. We had a sort of paralysed political process in Bradford for about 10, 15 years, really. So that was the first trigger, you know. You need some kind of network. And then secondly was, a, I think, a very important piece of research. Some of you will know this research. Can I just ask for a show of hands who, of her, who, who knows of Ashutosh Varshney's book? Anyone know it? Anyone heard of it? Well, if nothing else, it seems to me that's one critical piece of research which you'll take away with you from, from this presentation. Mm. Ashutas Varshney's, I, I think, is one of the most innovative pieces of, of research done. And he's an American of Indian origin. origin. And he, he basically, I don't know how he got it, he got seven years for research funds to ask the, ask the research question. After a major blow-up in India, Ayodhya or the Barbary Masjid, between Hindus and Muslims, why did three cities implode in Hindu-Muslim violence? Why did three similar cities not? And the, I think a really important piece of research, back with the importance of the city as a unit of analysis. And, I mean, to cut a long story short, he was saying it wasn't enough to have good personal relationships, i.e. mothers from different communities picking up their kids after school. That wasn't enough. You had to have, to use his particular preferred piece of jargon, robust cross-cutting associational links. Bit of a mouthful, that. That's one to sort of you know, try out your friends you know, over coffee. Cross-cutting associational links, but institutional links, where you, de where you develop civic resilience with key organisations, business community, maybe local politicians, cultural, major cultural figures, religious communities. So you had basically enough people from both communities with a stake in that city to resist the demagogues and the communalists who wanted to tear you apart on the back of this particular national Hindu-Muslim conflict. So again, I, I just read that and was very excited by the book. So that was my contribution to the discussion initially. And the third was a Bradford timeline you know, of sort of conflicts which were getting worse in the city. So, so there was a kind of trigger. And then the trigger for this, the, the specific trigger for the civic network, was the Metropolitan Commissioner of Peace saying it wasn't, it, it, you know, the question was not if, but when an atrocity would happen in Britain, which concentrates, concentrates the mind wonderfully, really. So we use the Varshney model, we being basically three, three people embedded in three institutions. Myself wearing my, my bishop's interfaith advisor hat. For those of you unfamiliar with the strange discombobulous entity, which is the Anglican Church, you know, as a national church, it has, the bishop is a public figure. He relates to business, political, and religious leaders. Very different from America, Bill, I guess. Thank you. Um, <laughs> just to cheer you up. But, but I mention that simply because each context has its own particular strengths institutionally. And one of our institutional strengths is an established church when it comes to these kinds of issues. So I worked for the bishop. And then, then we had a, a friend of mine, a professor of peace studies, who'd been in Madrid and worried about this stuff, and a leading local policeman. And so we took the, um, the Varshney model and we developed, say, five sectors. The business community, uh, then the voluntary sector, education which covered schools, college, university, uh, interfaith groups, local media, and politicians. They were the least engaged, I'm bound to say, but, but, but never mind. And now, so what we did, let me give you an example. We took, take the business community, we basically sent a letter signed by the Bishop of Bradford, Professor of Peace Studies and the local leading policeman. So it's quite hard to resist that invitation. 
you know, we would want you to come to a meeting. And so we went to Chamber of Commerce, a leading Asian Muslim business network. But we said to this group, you know, we told them what we were up to. There was likely to be an atrocity. You know, we were into sort of, if you like, management. How would we, you know, how would we manage the worst impact of that? And so they, they were enthusiastic, they all came. But we also insisted they identify a new generation of young British Muslim professionals in the city. So this was not going to be Muslim versus non-Muslim, but an assault on all of us, with Muslim young, young professionals as part of the conversation. I think that was very important, actually. And so we, what basically happened, we had 20 key people in the city who came to the bishop's home. There was an introductory talk by a professor of peace studies, Paul Rogers, some of you will know on the international scene, and the local police developed a scenario which was quite close to what actually happened. And then said to the business community, what do you want to do in terms of damage limitation? Working across communities in terms of business communities. And we did the same thing for each of these five sectors. And, and what was very interesting, what, what, it became, what became very apparent to us, if you take education as a category, the, the education authority were not talking to the college, the college wasn't talking to the university, they all had the same problems. If you had this sort of atrocity, in these kind of educational spaces can become potential battlegrounds if you're not thinking about it. And they weren't talking to each other. So what you were doing, you were creating a space for some strategic thinking. And then we, we, we identified two people from each sector who would then continue to meet. You know, and so the business community would say, this is what we're up to. The business community would say, we would like you, the voluntary sector, to be doing this. The voluntary sector would say, we would like you, the education sector, to be doing that. So you developed a kind of inchoate, if you will, civic network. And, and involved in the business community as well, which is quite important. And so when 77 happened, there was a whole series of initiatives which were rolled out. And I think very important, I think, that Bradford didn't have major problems. It would have been doing some serious thinking across key organisations. So, so that was one initiative. The, the, the Bridging Social Capital, the second example, the Intercultural Leadership School. Again, I'll just say a little bit about that. It, it started off quite serendipitously. Um, basically, what we'd done in the previous year, in, say, 2000, we'd got um, a bunch of people from four European cities with growing Muslim communities. Rotterdam, so we had the vice mayor from Rotterdam and a, a Muslim colleague, Berlin, somewhat similar, person in the authority with responsibility for the Turks, Copenhagen, a Muslim and uh, a key person from, in fact, the Christian churches who had a, ran an interreligious study centre. And, and we, we had a three-day conference on key, key players in the city, largely Christian and Muslim, with secular policymakers invited to the sessions. What is your vision for this city if you're a Muslim politician? What is your vision if you're in a business community? And you invited uh, key policymakers to those. And it was all part of, in a way, de developing a space to talk about sensitive issues and also to develop a level of religious and cultural literacy. Our policymakers are religiously illiterate. And that's the key problem, a key problem, in cities like Bradford. I'm sure Oxford is much more informed. But, and, 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 and at that conference, we, we actually, and, so, and we learned from the Turks what was happening in Berlin, what was happening in Rotterdam. So there was a sort of, you know, a good learning circle. And we had a, a guy from the Council of Europe who had been doing work with uh, post-Bosnia, getting young people in Bosnia Catholic, Orthodox, and um, Muslim together. And he says, why don't you, as a next stage, try and do something with young professionals, young people in the city? So, we, so the idea of intercultural leadership school was born. 
And I've given you a brief model of that. We identified in our networks 15 young professionals in their 20s who had some stake in their community, some profile. They could be teachers, they could be lawyers, they could be an imam, they could be a priest, they could be a business leader. And basically, we, 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 we got them in a beautiful, we took them out of Bradford in a beautiful residential place. And we, we structured these four days. The first day was on, each day was very different. The first day was what we call Religious Literacy Day. We got a specialist, more of these traditions, a, a humanist, a Christian, and a Muslim, and we created a space. Tell us what makes you tick as a Muslim, how do you deal with difference, how do you deal, you know, how, where do you discern commonalities across communities. But you, what you're really doing is creating a safe space. We have so few spaces in our cities to talk in a robust and honest way about some very difficult issues. So you created a safe space, and you, you know, so you could ask all the questions you wanted to ask the other lot. And then the second day, we had a day on leadership training. And we made sure we had a very fine Pakistani specialist. So he was a bit of a role model for the young Pakistanis there. But he was excellent. Then a day on conflict resolution skills, tapping into one of my friends from peace studies. And then a day on media skills. No good saying how awful the media is. Learn about it and, and work, you know, work it to your advantage. Now, what was really happening was friendship. And so what, what you're doing is you're, you're creating people who can nudge their own lot to a more honest engagement with the other lot, and you're supporting them in the process. And there are also young people who can connect with the 13 to 16-year-olds, which for most of us are just beyond the pale. We can't connect with these young people. But these are folks in their 20s. And so you've built up this network of trust, really. And that's been going pretty much ever since. And across the city, it's a bit like a mafia. You keep on bumping up against these intercultural leadership school, school alumni, as it were. And there's friendship and trust and a whole bunch of initiatives they've, they've done, really, independently. And then the third, the third one is, is often a very difficult one, is clergy and imams. I say it's difficult because there are some massive asymmetries between religious formation in different religious communities. If I can be anecdotal for a moment, I remember listening to Rowan Williams say that the politicians across the water think that an imam is, is a clergyman with a turban. An imam isn't a clergyman with a turban. He has a radically different religious formation. He generally, in the British context of South Asian Muslims, he doesn't have a public and civic role. He's not trained for such. So he got these asymmetries, really. But you want to, in, to involve some kind of conversation between the imams and, and the clergy, really. And so there were various mechanisms. We had a fun cricket game. And what we did, we took a bunch of imams and clergy to Leicester. Now, what we didn't do was imams versus clergy to reenact the crusades on the streets of Bradford. But we had a mixed team of imams and clergy from Bradford playing a mixed team of imams and clergy from Leicester. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, some, some lovely anecdotes, you can imagine, some of the lo lovely stories. But, you know, again, you're, you're finding some you know, non-controversial space. You know, people like cr cricket. So that broke the ice a little bit. So, and we did some mediation stuff with imams on family mediation. And then in the, one thing we also did, and I'll come back to this in a moment, we had a working party of a bunch of Anglicans and a national Muslim group. And we worked on some guidelines, and that's what you've got and, and we were actually quite pleased with these guidelines. I'm not saying they're the last thing. The importance is less the content, although some of these not, is quite useful, but the process. The sheer fact that you had a working party of imams and clergy trying to say, well, how do we improve relationships, wherever blockages, was, was inordinately important. The transnational stuff then comes in because 
you're dealing with Pakistani communities, Pakistani Christians, with a Pakistani village was attacked last year by a mob of radical Muslims and folks were murdered. So what did we do? We took leading Christian, a couple of bishops, a couple of leading local Muslims to Pakistan. Much more powerful than just a Christian group, to have some Muslims as well in this village in solidarity with. They're the ones able to ask the hard questions of the local policymakers in Pakistan. So that's just a little example. I'll, I'll maybe just, just, just draw, if I may, two points from this, which, which I think are actually quite important in light of some of the stuff we heard this morning. It's the stuff about history, the first paragraph, I think is a very important point, is we're not responsible for our history. We are responsible for how we use it today. Do we use our histories, which in terms of Christian Muslim traditions are often conflictual, do we use our histories as a weapon against the other, or do we, our, do we use our histories to quarry it for productive moments of collaboration and cooperation? That's our choice. So I think history is a very interesting and important area, really. We also talk about how you know, the language we use of each other is very important. Do Christians talk about Muslims as a whole bunch of fundamentalists? Do Muslims talk about Christians as a bunch of kafar, unbelievers, or do they use a more Quranic term, a bit more nuanced, people of a book? It matters. How do we talk about each other? What's the vocabulary we use? And there was a section on ethics, really, as well, which said, you know, but actually, whatever our doctrinal differences, and they're real and deep and persistent, there are some ethical commonalities. And we just picked up two very good phrases. And this Quranic verse, you see, I think is enormously impressive. Where, where in fact uh, God, for the Muslim tradition, addresses the believers, O you who believe, be upholders of justice, witnesses for Allah, even though against the interests of yourselves, your parents or your kinsmen. That's a very powerful appeal to justice, actually. And we give a Christian equivalent of concern for the vulnerable and so on and so forth. So you, you may enjoy reading that. It's not the final word, but I think the important thing is process. Creating spaces where we interact, Initially finding neutral, non-controversial ground to do so, where you can for cricket match, but beginning slowly to you know, chip away at mutual prejudice, mutual stereotype. I've probably gone on at least 20 minutes, but hopefully not too long. Phil, thanks very much indeed. Um, does anybody have one quick question of precisely to Phil, clarification, or if it can wait until the general discussion, I think it wait. Population in, in Bradford City, 300,000. In the Metropolitan District, about 460,000. Uh, you'd like mm-hmm. Surin to go next? Oh, the There's a question, question here, Liz. Shutting down of the uh, textile industry in Bradford City. Yeah. 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 Very high. But what is most worrying for us is it's, half, it's higher now among British educated Pakistanis, British born Pakistanis, because of you know, the cold economic climate. So we've got an exponentially growing set of what I call ethno Muslim communities, and the unemployment level is now very high because of very high levels of underachievement in education. And we may want to revisit that later, why that is so. And there are some very difficult issues around underachievement, which are part external, but certainly also the community's own priorities are working against educational achievement in sections of the community. Can you, can you put a number on, on the uh, percentage of the, this 
Unemployed. In terms of young people, it's twice as high as, the, you know, as in, in the majority community. So that just gives you an order of magnitude. Okay, um, are we able to go on to the next presentation? Right. Mm -hmm. And that be. I, that's myself. Here's a bit of an outline, too, and some resources on it. Um, I think this would be uh, a real tough session right after lunch. So uh, if you fall asleep, don't worry about it. Just read the top three paragraphs at the top, and you'll know exactly what I was talking about if someone should ask you. So don't, don't be worried. Just don't snore and wake the rest of us up, okay? That would be the problem. Uh, the, the title of my talk is uh, Faith-Based International NGOs' Experience with Peacebuilding. The international NGO I'm talking about is Catholic Relief Services. Catholic Relief Services uh, peace-building initiatives must be understood in their wider institutional context. The agency was founded in 1943 to assess war-ravaged Europe. Today, CRS is one of the three largest aid agencies in the United States, with operations in 100 countries and territories, in five continents, and a 208 operating budget of $640 million. Peace-building is just one of an array of programs that include emergency relief, agricultural development, education, HIV AIDS, microfinance, and advocacy on public issues. For peace building alone, CRS had at least 111 projects in 50 countries in 2008. The tipping point for us, changes in CRS's understanding of its mission can be traced to its experience of war. And no single war experience after World War II affected the direction of the agency as did the genocide in Rwanda. Prior to the genocide in 1994, CRS had served the people of Rwanda through its relief and development programs for more than 30 years. Many thousands of those served by CRS were killed in the genocide Others were widowed, injured, orphaned, or forced to flee. When Phil and I were talking about this early, he, he just almost couldn't put his mind around the thought that the agency was there for 30 years, saw its mission as relief and development, experienced the tensions, but never addressed them. That, in fact, was the case. In order to understand CRS's approach to peace building, it's important to review the context in which it developed. Catholic social teaching provided an overarching framework for the development of peace-building initiatives as part of two agency-wide strategic planning processes over the course of a decade. The first one began in 1995 in the wake of Rwanda. It launched a new trajectory for CRS in which Catholic social teaching had a central place. New guideline principles, and you'll find them on the back of your page there, based in Catholic social teaching, articulated the values of the agency and how they should be integrated into programming and management procedures. The second strategic planning process culminated in what we call a World Summit in 2000 that brought staff and partners together from across the globe to set new priorities. The summit further solidified Catholic social teaching as the foundation of CRS's work with solidarity as the mechanism through which CRS was to pursue global change. Since CRS's staff and partners 
needed additional skills to support their new mandates, they embarked on a major peacebuilding training effort. CRS staff helped develop and disseminate two Caritas Internationalist volumes, and they're listed on the back of your page, uh, the, the, the website of, uh, of uh, Caritas Internationalis, as well as the two volumes. These manuals became bedrock material for training and capacity building with development workers at the grassroots level with CRS and the larger Caritas network. CRS partnered with faculty at the University of San Diego's, sorry, that was a mistake, uh, at, the, at the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. I, I'm the University of San Diego, just a little slip of tongue, of course. Uh, on an agency-wide training event called the Summer Institute on Peacebuilding. Between the years of 2001 and 2006, every summer, it provided an introductory to peacebuilding concepts and skills for almost 200 CRS staff and partners. Meanwhile, there were country and regional kinds of trainings that were taking place. So we were taking a whole large agency and, in fact, training it in this context, as well as some of its closest partners. As peacebuilding was young and an emerging field, CRS could not readily develop specific guidelines or benchmarks for programming. Instead, in 2001, at the first Summer Institute of Peacebuilding at Notre Dame, CRS developed 10 peacebuilding principles, and again, you see them listed there. I chose two well-developed peacebuilding efforts or case studies as um, Liz has suggested we do, and I chose Burundi and Chad Cameroon. These capture, I think, a range of some of the actions and audiences that we kind of touched and some of the things that we learned. So for Burundi first. For our first of two case studies, we do turn to Burundi. Burundi, Rwanda's <coughs> lesser known neighbor, has experienced similar periods of intensive violence between two main groups, Tutsis and Tutsis. Tutsi, sorry. Uh, two major informative themes emerged from this case. Nurturing peace-building partnerships consistent with the principles of subsidiarity and balancing the spiritual and secular dimensions of peace-building. I don't have time for both of these, so I'll just deal with the second one. Nurturing peace-building partnerships. The Burundian crisis is rooted in a history of sporadic conflict and massacres that began before the country's independence in 1962. The proximate trigger, as you well known, was the assassination of its first democratically elected president in October of 1993. It is believed that during the violence, over 300,000 people, mainly civilians, were killed. Over half a million people were internally displaced, and another 600,000 people sought refuge in neighboring countries. Two additional factors contribute to the violence, an extremely high population density combined with very limited access to land and political manipulation of ethnic identities. A major learning gleaned from the Burundi case is the need to balance the spiritual dimensions of peace with the professional skills of the peace builder. This lesson was particularly evident in the initial phase of the Burundian intervention. In 2004, peacebuilding training and planning event was held in Hagerstown, Maryland, in the United States. The three-week workshop was divided into four interrelated types of activity. 
one, training sessions in conflict transformation, healing, and justice. Two, meeting with Francophile African community in Washington, D.C., the Holy See's permanent observer to the UN in New York, and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and others in Washington, D.C. Three, elaboration of an action plan by them for peace and reconciliation in the church in Burundi. And four, application of faith and spirituality to post-conflict Burundi. The program was a blend of faith training and training and strategizing and social support. The Hagerstown workshop began with a two-day spiritual retreat. The intent was to show parallels in the Bible with the participants' lives and the lives of their own people. It was a time of assisted deep reflection that brought participants to focus on the core of their own faith. Using services of skilled conflict transformation scholars and practitioners from the United States, the Commission had two days of reflection on reconciliation, trauma, and healing of memories. Afterwards, participants went into small groups to discuss their own sense of trauma and loss. The later planning stage, the Commission returned to these themes. Though participants welcomed the help of us experts from outside, they saw that the external assistance was relevant to the extent that it built upon their own pastoral abilities and sensitivities, which may have been insufficiently recognized and underutilized. There's a tendency to undervalue the rich human connectivity of relational ties such as those honed over a lifetime by the Burundian peacemakers themselves. This is acutely the case when the contribution is less material and tangible and more spiritual and relational. During those three weeks in the remote Maryland Retreat Center, spiritual resources were integrated with material ones. They were blended in subtle and rich ways so as to reinforce one another and give a distinctive Catholic flavor to the peace building which followed. The training and planning event brought partners of preference, that is, Catholic affiliates, into dialogue with the U.S. government funding agency. Remember here the great distinction in the United States between the, the secular and the religious, particularly when a government agency is providing fundings. It was a crucial to include a spiritual dimension if the peace building was to engage the church as a whole. One of CRS's principles of partnership places emphasis on the need to achieve complementarity and mutuality and partnership by recognizing valuing that each brings a set of skills and resources, knowledge and capacities to the partnership in a spirit of mutual autonomy. Let me leave that topic and go on to our second case. Let's talk about the Chad and Cameroon. You see it on your outline there. In some cases, CRS is faced with peace-building issues not addressed directly in Catholic social teaching and not normally considered within the competence of the institutional church. With the construction of an oil pipeline through Chad, Cameroon, CRS was faced with a somewhat unique case in which it had to work with local church to apply Catholic social teaching in new ways to a complicated economic, political, and ecological issue, namely extractive industries and more specifically, oil pipeline. CRS's efforts to address the Chad Cameroon pipeline were part of a wider effort to respond 
to the seeming paradox of poverty and conflict among great wealth and natural resources in sub-Saharan Africa. In 2001, CRS began a major effort to consider the impact of extractive industry on the poor and the vulnerable. CRS issued several widely circulated research papers and monographs on the impact of extractive industries on the prospects for development in peace in Africa and other regions. CRS co-sponsored international and regional conferences on extractive industries and supported training and advocacy programs in many countries. Advocacy forced on increasing transparency to ensure that revenues were used for poverty reduction and not to fuel more violent conflict, corruption, or repression. Many saw the Chad Cameroon Pipeline Project as a test case for uh, harnessing oil revenues to alleviate poverty in poor countries. Chad, one of the poorest and most corrupt countries with a history of conflict and instability, embarked on a $4 billion project to develop oil and export it via new pipeline through the Cameroon. The project was financed in part by the World Bank. Under pressure from the church and civil society groups, World Bank financing was conditioned on the implementation of a 1999 National Revenue Management Law, an unprecedented measure which required that 70% of certain oil revenues go to priority sectors such as education and health and set up oversight mechanisms to hold the government accountable for its use of such oil revenues. The success of this project was seen as crucial to the future of Chad, as well as a critical precedent for other efforts to solve the problem of what is called resource curse. Oil projects and pipelines were not issues about which the bishops' conferences in Chad and Cameroon initially felt they had any competence at all to speak. Yet CRS shared the concerns of many in the Catholic Church, Protestant denominations, and civil society groups in both countries about the possible negative impact of the pipeline on their already troubled nations. While CRS does not specialize in social ethics after an internal process of education, it was able to facilitate conversations in which the research and policy expertise were brought into dialogue with Catholic social teaching. A critical outcome of this process of education and dialogue on the moral implications of the pipeline project and similar projects in the region was a series of major church statements. In 2002, the Association of Episcopal Conferences of Central Africa region, which includes both the Cameroon and the uh, Chad, issued a pastoral letter that examined the relationship between oil and politics, oil and economic and social development, and oil and conflict in Central Africa. Drawing on scripture and Catholic social teaching, the bishops emphasized the themes of liberty and unity, preferential option of the poor, solidarity, and the church's responsibility in the world. The same year, a pastoral letter by the Catholic bishops of Chad brought attention to a range of justice and environmental issues raised by the pipeline. The impetus for the pastoral was the government's repeated violations 
of the 1999 Revenue Management Law. To complement the bishop's advocacy efforts, CRS supported church justice and peace commissions, which worked with civil society organizations to establish a civil society committee to verify that oil revenues from the pipeline were being distributed according to the law and that the pipeline did not harm the environment. This is an interesting added perspective now. The church's effort in Chad, Cameroon, were supported by not only the United States Catholic Bishops' Conference, but also Episcopal Conference in other countries beyond the United States, such as France and other European countries. The process of dialogue and engagement, which occurred within Chad and Cameroon, and between the church in those countries and the church in other countries, had possible outcomes, pos positive outcomes. First, and most important, it contributed to moral clarity about an issue which seemed at first blush to be beyond the church's competence. That moral clarity was essential in establishing the church to play a significant role in the debate on the pipeline. Second, it showed the influence and reach of the Catholic Church as a transnational actor. CRS, as an international agency based in the United States, supported the efforts of national and regional Episcopal conferences to develop their capacity to address moral issues raised by the oil project, while also connecting these Episcopal conferences with their counterparts in countries that could help them influence deliberations in international organizations such as the World Bank. There's about three more minutes of uh, text here. Uh, we all sort of got cut a little short by the late lunch, so I'll just kind of eliminate that and save the time for questioning. Well, it's actually a summary. I say it all over again, I, having told you what I was going to say, then telling you, then I was going to tell you what I said. So, but I'll skip that for now. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Uh, quick questions for clarification. Uh, yeah. Please. I might have kind of missed it as you were going. I'm uh, sorry if it was a little quick, and then there's that American accent, you know. We, well, she's used to that. Okay. <laughs> about the World Bank. Yes. What kind of pressure did you place on the World Bank? I mean, how was that organized? Okay. Well, what happened is we eventually arranged for uh, a, a leader of the, uh, the, the, the uh, Chad Church uh, to come to the United States and, and speak to the Bishop's Conference, a very special committee. It's called International Policy Committee. They discuss these things. And the famous and now somewhat... Uh, um, humbled, I would say, Cardinal Law, who became the center of the scandal in the United States. But as, as so often happens, people have gifts in other direction. And one is a very great sensitivity to international concerns. He got on the phone to people in the Congress, and this priest had access to them, and they made it possible for the World Bank. And so that's what you call opening doors. Huh? It was very effective, though, and that's what we mean. This gets very earthy sometimes, making that contact with others. Thank you. Thank you. Could we now move the table? Okay. I, I see another question need... up there. We'll, we'll hold it, I oh, guess. Oh, sorry. Um, well, perhaps you can be answering it. Well, okay, please, your question. <laughs> because, uh, you mentioned that the Catholic Yes. And the question is... Would the work have been equally effective had it not had the Catholic flavor? 
it, it could have been. I, I, that's, a, that's a good speculative question, so to speak. I, I think um, that issue, it, it was, as I said, it was already sensitiveness in the community to this issue. If there had been some other catalyst that would have brought it together with a different phrase, I'm sure it could have gone on. It just happened that they were there, they were large, and they were very organized, and they were sensitized to that issue. But I, I think it could have been done. We have our third presenter, uh, whom we welcome from the University of Kent. And if you can uh, lead us on into All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I thought IT is um, the global southern revenge on the developed world. Because uh, looking at an American and then an Englishman presenting on paper, we need to hit back, so I'm using my computer, <laughs> all right? <laughs> um, living as a minority has been um, part of my life, and I just um, embodied here on two reasons. One is living between two academics, achieved academics, and then living as a sinner in between two holy people. <laughs> so uh, that's again, uh, um, kind of a minority syndrome continuing in me. Thank you for the invitation and uh, it is a privilege and an honor to be here, uh, arguably the mecca of uh, academic excellence for the last 800 years in the English-speaking world. So my uh, presentation is based on the uh, somewhat famous, infamous case study of Sri Lanka which the British, um, because we had historical friendly ties uh, with the British media and the British government, uh, there were quite a number of uh, deep interest what happened in Sri Lanka. One of the key issues or the uh, questions that have been always raised whenever we walk in the corridors of columns of power in the Western world, and when people get to know that we are from Sri Lanka, ask the question, how is that possible for a Buddhist country to continue to hold on to a protracted war for the last 30 years? Now, Grandmaster Galton being here, uh, <laughs> I mean, his 30-odd visit to Sri Lanka, if I'm not mistaken, yes. I think he still grapples with the issue. How is this, this possible? Between uh, a religious philosophy which is known for its ahimsa, non-violent philosophy can still be the uh, running engine or the falling tank between uh, a warring um, factions of, in a country. Exactly about a year ago, that's on the 18th May 2009, the Sri Lankan army surprised the world by completely pulverizing the LTT's uh, entire war mechanism LTT being the Tamil separatist um, tigers, uh, and including the, the elusive leader of the organization, Mr. Velikulay Prabhakar. Now, this was the army which was uh, uh, fighting a battle for 30 years, and uh, on the, as against that, the LTT was uh, named as one of the most organized, disciplined uh, guerrilla war um, groups including uh, owning a, a very basic air force. And they were the first guerrilla group in the world. So this was a surprise to the observing world. But Sri Lanka succeeded 
because Sri Lanka now openly, uh, it's an open truth, Sri Lanka received hardware, military hardware from China and strategic and um, other diplomatic support from India, the two big neighbors. But the biggest support to the war mechanism or the mobilization of the war in Sri Lanka as a determined uh, end came from the Mahasangha, the, the Buddhist clergy. So this is a question. Why and how did the clergy of the Buddhist faith somehow turned around and came to support the government's military solution, which obviously knew there will be a major, uh, both sides, of, there will be major loss of life. So this is one, number one, contrary to the Theravadic uh, Ahimsa philosophy. Number two, this is also going against the, uh, the one of the five precepts of uh, every Buddhist, which is uh, meaning I will obtain from taking another's life. And then this is also going against the understanding, the, the oriental understanding of the Sinhala people's culture who had been a very receptive, very hospitable, very smiling people. And then of course the third factor was this military solution dismissed the Eurocentric conflict resolution peace industry. Thank you for introducing that word, sir. Peace industry, because uh, um, this industry was led by the Norwegians, uh, and the Mahasangha managed to somehow dismiss the million-dollar investment the Norwegians did in Sri Lanka with 50 rooms in, in Oberoi Hotel and all those monitoring teams going around. And then, of course, the fourth factor that came is that um, they negated by single-handedly the hyper-liberal theory called R2P or right to protect, which ironically uh, the Chancellor last week mentioned about Sri Lanka saying that the new British government, whatever the government will be, will take more uh, care to uphold philosophies like R2P. Responsibility to protect. That's right. Yeah, responsibility to protect. So how did this, this this happened. How did the renouncer Sangha become the moral champions of a savage military solution? Of course, this is the question uh, um, 30, 40 years ago, still the American anthropologists were grappling with, like people like Obesekar, Tambaya, and Gombrich, and all those great gurus were struggling with this issue, which had come back. So my interest is, like what I uh, uh, replied to an evangelist, first week when I was in Kent, walking in the corridors of the cathedral, an evangelist came to me and said, are you from India? They often make that gravest mistake thinking that we're all from India. I said, no, I'm from Sri Lanka. Then he said, do you know, brother, Jesus is the answer? I said, yes, to which question? <laughs> That's okay, Jesus is the answer, but what is the question? So that's my, my, my approach to the, the idea about Sangha getting involved. There are generic answers to why Sangha is involved and why Sangha is politicized. Number one is to say the military victory was important because LTT was a textbook terrorist group, according to Newsweek. And Prabhagran is the most ruthless person, therefore he had to be and his mechanism had to be eliminated. That's one genre of answers, one school of answers. 
The second is what Tambaya created as the, no, it's, it's not Buddhism. Buddhism had been completely betrayed. And what we see in Sri Lanka is not Buddhism, therefore we need to reinvent Buddhism. So you see this, this greater category of these two schools uh, are, are actually they're bipolar answers. They fall into a, a, a school of uh, um, answers which can be varied in, in multiple ways. But I think these two answers show, or the cat schools of answers shows that the deeply divided nature of the conflict in Sri Lanka. It is historical, it is current, and it is also being institutionalized in that manner. But coming from a Buddhist background, for me, ironically, I come from a mixed family. My mother is more Sinhalese, my father is Tamil, so my, my friends told me that if I'm getting involved in peace process, I will have two bullets, yeah. not just one. <laughs> because I, I'm trying to negotiate. In London, when I talk to the Tamil people, saying that uh, diaspora is living in such a uh, um, dreamy world, you need to negotiate with the Sinhala brothers, they call me a traitor. And when I tell my Sinhalese friends, look, you need to give capacity to the Tamils to live, they say, you are worse than a terrorist, because you are the ideologue of the terrorist. However, I need to find a middle path, which is the essence of Buddhism, the Madhima Pratipada. I mean, Professor, you today talked about a lot of middles, and I was thinking, this is like uh, reclaiming the Buddha's teaching. We need to go back to find a middle ground where both parties can walk without hurting each other. So therefore, I'm, I'm thinking, it's not, I'm not the pioneer of this, but there is a moment of thinking, understanding Buddhism from a political perspective. Because the traditional understanding of Buddhism came and still dominated by the anthropologic interpretation. You know, the uh, modernist colonial masters, when they came to the East, they were kind of really, really taken by the serenity, the yellow robe, uh, simple lifestyle, and that's exactly what the industrial world wanted to see. So it became more anthropology, and then we possibly failed to understand the politics behind it. So is there, a, is there a call now for a political anthropology or the anthropology of the politics of the sun? Whatever way you want to look at it. The returns of the religions. Thanks to the pioneers who have gone before us, there is a serious and serious effort now to understand the importance of the religion in political affairs. It is, it is an answer to the, the modernist who refused to accept the power of religion. And they said, religion is no more important. I mean, end of history. All those theories came, but it took a 9-11, a shaking of the security foundation of the Western world to think, oh, it's not the end of the history. There's another parallel history that I've been developing which we ignore. So religions have returned. However, my observation is that still the greater proportion of these religious understanding are focused on Islamism or Zionism because they are guided by the notion that certain religions are more violent. Certain religious cultures are more violent oriented than the Eastern religion. But that's not true. History shows us differently. People who have gone before trying to couple these two areas, ethno-religious nationalism and political 
Sinhala Buddhism. Why do I call that uh, uh, political Sinhala Buddhism? I'll come to that in a minute. People like Jonathan Fox, whose who's, uh, work really, really enriching in this area. And, and of course, you have many of you are familiar with Marx Dewan's work, The Terror of God's Mind. And then from the other side, these all these five uh, people that I am uh, uh, showing you here are indigenous intellectuals from Sri Lanka. The benefit of this is that they are able to understand the Sangha from an insider point of view, not the, the, the colonial type, the American anthropologist who came to study, observe how people met, met uh, and finally possibly married a, a young uh, subject of him and went back. This is turning. These Sri Lankans are now, including Venerable uh, Mahindra Digale, he's, he's into this. They are studying from an insider point of view. How do Buddhists understand themselves? Is there a voice among the Buddhists? Why do the Sangha feel so threatened when we talk about democracy? This is exactly the deconstructing the question before we find an answer. Sangha is, of course, you know, I'm just running through now because uh, we are of the time factor. Sangha is the third uh, embodiment of the Buddhist trinity, which is the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. Of course, Sangha is the personification also because the uh, Buddhists can't see Buddha because Buddha lived and he will be later. And Dhamma is a philosophy. So Sangha is the personification. So Sangha has a direct relationship with the follower. Institutionalizing Theravada school in Sri Lanka was a religious quality of the Emperor Asoka. If, if, you, if you just browse through history of uh, uh, India, Asoka was called Chanda Asoka before his conquering and uniting uh, the entire India from Afghanistan to this room. So he was Chanda means uh, violent, a guy who had apparently record says 99 of his brothers and cousins uh, because they will be a threat to him once he is in power. But what happened there, Buddhism, Buddhist history records that it was a Sangha who preached to him because Asoka was not a Buddhist at that time when he was born. But he met a Sangha, a Buddhist monk, who taught to him become a Buddhist. The moment he became a Buddhist, he, he, he turned around. He became Dharmashoka. He became the, the Asoka of the righteous. Now, this is the Buddhist heritage. One can claim that, go back to that. So my effort, actually, is to talk to some of my Buddhist uh, uh, friends and uh, Sangha to say, can we go back to our origins? Because I think Professor uh, uh, Gautam was reminding that it's important for us to go back to our roots. If a religion is the problem to a, to a situation, that religious faith should have the answer also. It is up to us to go back to the roots. So this is our, my effort in, in, in terms of understanding Buddhism and uh, building a dialogue between the Tamil community and the Buddhists. And I believe the, uh, the Mahasangha has a key role to play here. Uh, Buddhism today, as in Sri Lanka, is not nearly governed by the Pali Buddhist text, but it is governed by the mytho literature, which is called Mahavamsa. Mahavamsa is the great chronicle. It writes the history of the Buddhist uh, uh, kings and the relationship between the kings and the Sangha, how they manage society. This is the uh, chronology of uh, how it, it had took place. First it was the Pali canonical, then it was political Mahavamsa, then we had a Protestant revival. This is Obeseker's uh, uh, 
renaming. He said uh, when the missionaries went early 19th century and started converting, there was huge protest. And the ultimate of protest was uh, one Anagaharika uh, Dharmapala, supported by Olcott of an American uh, Civil War veteran. There was a revival saying, do not do this. This is our culture. You are invading too much of our culture. So it was revival uh, uh, Protestant uh, uh, Buddhism. What after 1993, the year that LTT came out very strongly and started attacking the state of Sri Lanka and the state symbols of Sri Lanka, what I call is the, the, the patriotic militant Buddhism came back. It was marginalized, but they said no. Now the way we have to protect is we got to have our patriotism and then we got to be militant. Because in the in the single identity, the Sangha identity, the land, ethnicity and faith, meaning the Rata, Jatya, Agama are absolutely important. It is like Jerusalem. There is no negotiations on Jerusalem. It cannot be divided. For a Buddhist mind, for a, for, a, uh, for a Buddhist person, Sri Lanka is the only place that they live. And they are against, and this is historized. This is exactly what Dudukemunu asked. Where will I go if the Tamils take over the northern part? Am I to jump into the sea? This is 5th century, Dudukemunu was asking. The same question is being asked by some of my friends back in Colombo. Where can we go? You have 100 million people just across India, another 2 million powerful diaspora outside, and they are waging a war against us. Sinhalese is the only language we have, and that's spoken here. And Sinhala Buddhist, we are the only 15 million minority. We are a world minority, and we need to be protected ourselves, if necessary, by violence means. Okay. So this whole idea about defining oneself is within the matrix of the modern Sinhala society. Defining oneself. Who am I? I am a Sinhalese, I am a Buddhist, I am a Sri Lankan. Then defining similar people. Because all Sinhalese are not Buddhist. There is about 6% Sinhalese who are not Buddhist, who are of the Catholic and other uh, faith due to the colonial uh, legacy. Then defining the other. Who is the other? Now, of course, I am talking in front of uh, uh, Dr. Amamani, who had an absolute when I say absolute, <laughs> it's a learning uh, curve for all of us, uh, Doctor. Thank you for your, your absolute patience, the way gracefully you handled the situation. You didn't brand them and, uh, and you, you, I think you left the door open. It is, the debate is still on, though you are not there. She was working in Sri Lanka. For some, under some conditions, she, she moved out of Sri Lanka, which you can ask her later in private. Uh, therefore, who is the other? Always the question comes, who am I as a Sri Lankan, who is the other as a, uh, a non-Sri Lankan? These four variables keep working as sometimes as uh, um, permanent uh, constant variables, sometimes they are uh, uh, negotiable variables. Okay, moving on. War and peace. Singhala Sangha has shown three major issues. One is, if necessary, peace could be reached by annihilating the enemy. This the Norwegian peace process people always forget. And when I sat with Eric Solheim, I told him, do you ever consider that within your parameters, there is a possibility of one party completely winning and establishing victor's justice? That was not in their radar. They were always governed by this 
win-win Harvard model, uh, uh, you know, prisoner's dilemma, all those textual things. But in, when you're on, on ground, the reality could be completely different. Ethno-religious number two, ethno-religious nationalism could bind an otherwise failing state. Today, there is greater unity in the southern Sri Lanka, across parties, across uh, uh, regions, across other uh, differences like caste barriers, because this state has come together and conquered one common enemy. So, ethno-religious nationalism has put back as a foundation, founding or a binding bond. Ethno-religious militancy can be a modernist discourse. Because it doesn't say that they want to go away, but they are willing to live with the same space the modernists are occupying today. They are saying, can we talk democracy in terms of ethno-national democracy? And I think the Americans are now recognizing the importance of having an Iraq, not just, just one single Iraq, but multiple identity of Iraq, how they can live together. So this is the, this is the challenge the ethno-nationalists are giving back to the, the uh, liberal uh, discourse. Because the liberal discourse originally started saying there is no room for religion and, and then now realizing they had to negotiate. By this presentation, by no means I am arguing to say that Singhala Sangha are megalomaniacs or primordial spoilers. No. My argument is to say Sinhala Buddhism as it understood today is a political religion built on ontological insecurities so we need to negotiate without dismissing that. The ontological root paradigm of Sinhala politics and governmentality is based on the Mahavamsika matter narrative. He historized the Theravada political project. You know, the Mahavamsa was written in response to a fight that was happening between two schools within the, Mahavi, uh, uh, the, the Theravada school. That is, one was Mahavihara, which was government-sponsored school, and the other one was Jetavana, which was the uh, more of Mahayana Buddhist sect that was in Sri Lanka around the 4th century. So this book is, is, is a, a blueprint for that kind of narrative. We need to understand that. That is where the history comes from. Therefore, how do we look at the future? Since ethno-religious nationalist ideologies have become a returning reality in Sri Lanka and many other similar states, right, you know them, liberal democracy cannot dismiss this reality. But of course, we cannot embrace it fully either because it has its own graveyard. Therefore, as a Buddhist in mind, my argument is to we liberal democracy people have to devise new mechanism, theoretically and otherwise, to find ways to negotiate with these incompatibilities that are seen as realities. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Right. Now, in theory, tea should have appeared. Um, in practice, it clearly hasn't. Um, I hope that it will after our next session. So that does leave us with a few minutes for um, general questions and answers because we don't start the next sessions until 3 o'clock. So five minutes or so for... Is there anybody there?
Okay, tea is going to come. Right, a few minutes while tea is uh, coming up. Professor Garthing. Does that have to be brilliant? Just to know, let me first say one simple thing. Don't in any way confuse me with the new government. The greatest mistake. These two words are going to play together. I just wanted to add to your opinion. When I have talked to the Buddhist Tanga, the history of Hindu Buddhist relations and the idea of the Buddhist being chased out of India irrespective of King Yashoka comes up in a situation where the Hindus were the majority and the Buddhists the minority. Yeah. And now in Lanka we have the opposite a divention. A simple dimension across quite a lot of centuries. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, 2,500 years. So it is an element, it's a feeding into it. You know, the important thing when you're dealing with the conflict, never land on only one factor, but always many other factors. Point two. A characteristic of Buddhism, and I calculate, I see myself as one, is the very high level of tolerance, in the sense that if you are a Buddhist, you can actually be a Christian at the same time. You can be a lot of things, which is very shocking, for instance, to Norwegian Christian missionaries <laughs> in Buddhist territory. But you can also relate to the state. And the moment you get state Buddhism, it can become very vicious. Uh, Thailand is an other And you can see the way they behave towards the Muslim in the South. The third example would be the Buddhists in Japan and the way in which they related to the Shinto and the Confucians in a triangle which spelled Kamikaze. And the Buddhists were extremely proud of their relationship to the Shinto and the Confucians. Uh, the Christians were the ones who were in opposition to Japanese militarism, not the Buddhists. In other words, you have, if you will, a kind of tolerance gone wild, where they sacrifice their ahimsa, the non-violence principle. And the third point, which has nothing to do with that, you played up the role of China and India. I think both the United States and the United Kingdom would be offended by what you said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, as you very well know, the deputy ambassador U.S. embassies, the head of CIA, and the deputy high commissioner of the British one is the head of MI6. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When these two have lunch together, that's when things happen. And I would attribute to it the same importance as to the Indians. More particularly, the idea of the suicide bomb. And that the idea that the Sri Lanka, where there would be a Tamil Ilam, would be the born home state for Al-Qaeda. Yeah. And you add that to it, and I remember myself almost praying on my knees to the Tamil Tiger leadership. Why don't you announce as your discourse, farewell to the child soldiers, 
put your violence or terrorism down to zero except for self-defense and enter a discourse of federalism. But they were bent at revenge. And I see it as a 2,500-year struggle that carries waves through history. Now, in no way does anything that I have said negate anything what you said. Yeah. I just wanted to add to it. Thank you. So, thank you, my dear friend. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And as long as you promise not to confuse me, no Norwegian. No, no, I don't do that. I, I don't do that. I, have... I can accept anything. <laughs> <laughs> because you were one of the very few people who at least uh, critically engaged with the Norwegian process. Oh, sure. Yeah. Now, I got uh, very high comments from uh, the media. As a matter of fact, you may not know that, but one evening the Sri Lanka radio suspended all the news and it was all given to me to a talk. Oh, is right. About I think perhaps if we could direct our questions um, later, to, well, over tea to the individual speakers. We do need to stop now because others are needing to come in for tea, so we have 10 minutes for tea. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.